What's the worst that could happen? Uh, famous last words. Actually, those were my famous last words on the day that changed my life forever. Uh, I first started out in ministry as a student pastor and a worship pastor. And much like today, my favorite part about ministry is hanging out with you. Uh, in fact, just yesterday I was at a soccer game with a family and then I went on a boat with a family. That's my favorite kind of boat, by the way. Someone else's boat. That's my favorite kind of boat. <laughs> Uh, but what's the worst that could happen? I was a student pastor and I like to hang out with families. So I was at uh, this family's house and they had a huge ranch. I was in a small community called Madera in the Central Valley, uh, which the logo for Madera is literally a heart because it's the center point of California. And so it's the heart of California. So we're in Madera, we're at this ranch and there's a ton of land and there's dirt bikes and quads and pro haulers, which are these really big golf carts uh, that have like suspension and they go like 35, 40 miles an hour and no seatbelt necessary. I know now it's a bad idea, right? But I got into it. And so I'm in the golf, I'm in the golf cart, the bro hauler. Uh, Garrett, one of my students who's 13 years old, is driving. I'm in the passenger seat as an adult and we're just having a blast. He's going as fast as he possibly can and I'm like, I'm loving this. His sister, Kelly, and her friend are behind us in their own pro hauler. And so we're driving, and I say, Garrett, I have a great idea. I'm going to try jumping from one to the other one. Here's what a 13-year-old told an adult. That's not a good idea. <laughs> and I said, what's the worst that could happen? So, well, here's what happened. Well, I, we're moving. We're driving 35, 40 miles an hour. I jumped from one, and here's how physics works. The cars kept moving. I didn't. Right? I just came out and I was, I was just there. Well, the next one came up. I hit the windshield of that one. I landed on the dirt, the hard ground, and I passed out with a smile on my face. How terrifying do you think that is for a 13 and 14 year old? And I was always goofy, kind of like I am now. And they were like, Marcus, quit playing, quit playing. And I'm just like, <laughs> they're like, Marcus, quit playing. Quit. Well, uh, come to find out, I actually was immediately in a coma. Uh, the ambulance arrived, paramedics showed up. Uh, they go through my phone and uh, they call my mom. Uh, pro tip, parents, ensure that your kids have your name as like mom or dad or, or grandma or emergency contact number one uh, because that's how the paramedics are able to do that. So they called my mom and they said, uh, your son has been in an accident and he's in a coma. They rushed me to the hospital. I'm in the hospital and in this moment, I don't know anything that's going on. Um, that entire part of the story that I just told you, I don't remember any of it. None of it. I actually learned that story from Garrett and Kelly, who would tell me later. Uh, I'm in this coma for a few weeks. I wake up completely terrified. I have no clue what's going on. I wake up, I'm in a bright room with things hooked up and things plugged into me. I had no clue what was going on. Was I abducted? I don't know what happened. I wake up and I'm terrified. I actually start pulling cords out and trying to figure everything out. Uh, they actually have to restrain me. And as I wake up, uh, the doctors tell me that, Marcus, when you hit the ground, um, your brain smashed forward in your skull and severed nerves in your nose that'll cause you to never to smell again and you're not going to taste. While they're saying this, I'm trying to respond and the doctors realize I can't talk, I can't walk, I don't know my name, I don't know my family's names. And so that moment of what's the worst that could happen left me in this season of hopelessness. And it wasn't just the short and long-term memory loss that I still deal with today. It wasn't just the, the smell and the uh, sense of taste that I lost and that I'm 
have very little of still today. It's not the consistent migraines that was the most crushing. What was the most crushing is the hopelessness. And I feel like in our world today, for many of us, that's what we're feeling, is a bit of hopelessness that is crushing our soul. That you, you look at the world around us and you're thinking, it, it seems like things have all gone the other way than God intended. Today, as we kick off the series Thriving in Babylon, we're going to be answering the question, how do I find hope when it seems all is lost? And I feel like for you, maybe your story isn't the same as mine, and you deal with a, a subdural hematoma, which is the uh, brain issue that I deal with, and maybe that's not your issue, but you look at our world today, our society, and you're saying, I feel this hopelessness. I feel like we're living in a society that is covered in and surrounded by calamity. Maybe you're looking at your family, and you're saying, it's, God, is this what you intended? You look at what's happening in our state or our county or our nation and you're saying, God, is this it? You look at the state of the world and the wars and rumor of wars and you're saying, God, is this, is this what we're supposed to do? And you're thinking, should I just bow out? Should I just forget it all? Or, or God, are you going to do something? Are you going to show up? We're living in a world that is surrounded by confusion and obscurity. God, what are we supposed to do? How am I supposed to live for you in a culture that wants nothing to do with you? Maybe you're feeling like you're living in a world of hopelessness. Rabbi Hugo Gwynn, who grew up during the terrible time, um, he was in Auschwitz, uh, which is the internment camp and execution camp. Um, and while he was there, he said there's one thing that he learned, that he can survive three weeks without food, but not three minutes without hope. And how many of us feel like we're trying to survive without hope? So we're gonna look today at what this idea of Babylon actually is. We're going to be opening our Bibles to the book of Daniel. If you have your Bible with you, would you turn with me? If you have your online Bible, your app Bible, whatever you have, turn with me to the book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. It's past Psalms and Proverbs. You can keep going over to the right. You're going to see some of the different prophets. You're going to see Jeremiah. You're going to see Ezekiel. And right after Ezekiel, you'll see Daniel. And Daniel, uh, just to kind of set up, Daniel is an autobiography. Daniel is writing this story. He's writing this experience that he had to share with us. He's writing this to encourage those who feel hopeless. You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe think of an area in your life where you're thinking, God, are you there? Do you care? Have you left? God, what am I supposed to do? So Daniel writes this as an encouragement to the hopeless, and my prayer is today that we would find hope in some of the words that God has written for us. So I want to pray before we go any further that God would speak to us today. So God, we come before you. We ask, Lord, that we'd be able to hear from you, that, Lord God, you would just mute and silence anything that is not of you. Lord, we are here to hear your voice from your word as we learn your truth, so we're changed forever. Let us learn from you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, just to set up, there, there essentially was a separation that happened with Israel. Uh, the northern part of Israel uh, was the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom was Judah. There was this separation, essentially two brothers at war, uh, the same nation that was separated. And the Assyrians had come in and conquered the north, and now the Babylonians were coming in to conquer the south. And essentially the Babylonians would take over everything. And so that's what we're about to read, Babylon. And the word Babylon literally means confusion. Doesn't it seem like we're living in a bit of Babylon today? But there's a lot of confusion. And 
when I speak of the Assyrians, I want to share with you how, how they conquered. They would come in, they would destroy, they would pillage, they would do extreme harm, terrible atrocities. Um, they would harm the women and the children and the men, they would fillet them. And they would take their skin and put it on a wall as a wallpaper. The Babylonians, they would come in and conquer. They'd take you to Babylon and say, look around. All of this beauty. Everything you could ever imagine, everything you could ever dream of, you can have it all. All you have to do is just think like we do. That's the Babylonian way. When you are captivated by Babylon, you weren't essentially harmed. You were just shown a way of life that was completely against the culture and the belief system that you were raised up in. Babylon said, look at Babylon. Do you want this? You can have it. Stop thinking the way that you were taught. We'll teach you something new. That's what we're about to walk into now in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, this is the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Uh, Jerusalem. Babylon means confusion, city of confusion. Jerusalem means city of peace. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into King Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These, speaking of King Nebuchadnezzar, he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put these treasures in the house of his God. Because at that time, it wasn't like just people and nations were fighting each other. It was as if the gods were fighting each other. So if, if Jerusalem lost, oh Jerusalem, your God is not as strong as ours. Which Nebu was one of the gods in, uh, in Babylon. That's where you get Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and they said, our God is stronger than yours. So they would take the articles from the temple and they'd put it in front of their God and say, look who won. Look, look at all of your spoil, God, Nebu. But we'll read and keep reading. You'll see God had a different plan. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Now, there's three steps that I really want to focus on today as we read. And throughout the series, we'll kind of go further and unpack them. When it comes to Babylon, as I said, when you are captivated by Babylon, they would just show you, don't you want to live this life? And the first step is isolation. They pull you away from what you know and your family and what you believe so that you have no more support. Doesn't it seem like we live in Babylon today? Pull them, family, royal nobility. Young men without any physical defect. Handsome. Showing aptitude for every... Every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Isolation, then followed by indoctrination. We want them to think like us. Doesn't it seem like we're living in Babylon? Verse 5. The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Uh, this, is, this is to show them that, oh, the Lord isn't your shepherd. I, the king of Babylon, am your shepherd. You shall not want. You have no need to ask for anything because you have the choicest of foods. Anything you could ever desire. Just follow me. So he gives them the king's table. They're to be trained for three years, indoctrination. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some of Judah. 
Now we know the first name that we see, Daniel, but the next three we maybe don't often think of very much. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Because this is where we start the next phase, isolation, indoctrination, and then identity alteration. Doesn't it seem like we're living in Babylon? The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave them Belteshazzar. Daniel was a a symbol and a word that would talk about God of the Bible, Elohim, Daniel, Elohim, God is my judge. He said, your name is now Belteshazzar, talking about Bel, who is one of the Babylonian gods. You are not identified by the God you believe anymore. You're identified by the God of Babylon. Hananiah, Shadrach, same thing. Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. Isolation, indoctrination, identity, alteration. What I love about this letter to the hopeless, Daniel is is sharing with us, and we're going to continue to read further in the weeks, we're we're going to read that Daniel says, you can change my name, you can change my address, but you will never change where I place my trust. And if you want to thrive in Babylon, that's what we have to do. We have to trust God's process, even when it doesn't make sense. Because we have to know that God is at work. God is at work. Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms, says, I look up to the mountains, I look up to the hills, where does my help come from? My help's come from the Lord, the maker of heaven and the earth. He who will not let your foot slip, because he who is watching you does not sleep. Yes, the God of Israel does not slumber. My God is not sleeping. And if you feel like the situation you're walking through right now, God, where are you? I look at society, I look at my family, I look at my neighborhood, I look at my workplace. God, where are you? He's saying, I'm not sleeping. I'm with you. I'm right here. And I believe tough seasons cause us to ask really difficult questions. And I'd like to ask these three questions. And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write these down. Number one, God, what are you teaching me? Because when we're in these seasons of pressure, of crushing, of pain, God is teaching us something. I promise you that. As you look all throughout the word, the wilderness is where God trains. The storms is when God shows up. And in the quiet, God is there. He's teaching us something. And what he's teaching us has to do with these two next questions. God, what do you want me to know? And what do you want me to do? God, what are you teaching me? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? If you begin to ask those questions, you start to see what God actually wants us to know. And in fact, it was in verse 2. And so many of us, if you've read the book of Daniel, you think of Daniel in the lion's den, you think of the blazing furnace, and we forget that this entire story, this entire historical situation that happened, all happened not because Babylon won, but because the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. What? It's not as if King Nebuchadnezzar with all of his might walked in and said, look how strong I am, you guys need to bow down. King Nebuchadnezzar was walking in and God said, my people have turned from me. They've asked for a different king. Thy will be done. I will deliver them into your hand. God is at work and God is in control. There is no war that is won that God did not have his hand in. This battle did not happen. I love how uh, Daniel would write that the king of Babylon came in and besieged it. He's not saying he won. He's saying he just came in and started to say, this is, this is where it goes here and I'm, I'm going to start to rule here. And, but the Lord is the one who delivered them. And I love how many times we, we pray, God, just deliver me from this. And he's saying, I am delivering you. It's just not to the place or the position that you want or expect, but it's what you need. Proverbs 21, speaking of kings, speaking of authorities, says, 
the, the hearts of all kings are in the hand of the Lord. And like water in the river, he controls where they go. <laughs> God is in control of who's in control. And if we know that, when you may be walking in a season that feels like Babylon, feels like extreme pressure, you can say, it doesn't matter who's in an office, who is sitting in a certain seat, because at the end of the day, I know who's on the throne. I know that my king wins. I know I read, I read the rest of the book. It's the best thing to know. We win. When you're on team Jesus, you win. You read the rest of the Bible, you get to the book of Revelation, who wins? Jesus. In fact, the angels cry out. They say, indeed, Babylon has fallen. Even though Babylon would be completely destroyed and God's word would say it would never rise up again, Babylon is an idea of confusion. And the angels cry out in the end, Babylon has fallen. In fact, a hundred years before this happened, we have a prophet who would actually say exactly what was going to happen. The prophet Isaiah says it this way. The time will surely come when everything in your palace, he's speaking to Hezekiah at this time. Who, uh, just is a little bit, let me nerd out for half a second here. Uh, a little bit of the story. Hezekiah sees people from Babylon come in and he's like, oh, let me show you everything we have. He literally takes them into the chambers, into the courts. He shows them everything you have. And Isaiah says, what'd you just do? He goes, I showed them everything. And Isaiah goes, that's not good. He goes, I just wanted them to see everything we have and just know all of our secrets. And Isaiah is telling Hezekiah, because God's people are turning more and more away from him, he says, there will be a time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and the royal families, people from royal descendants, will be taken into Babylon and serve in the king's courts. And this prophecy would be fulfilled in the lifetime of Daniel. Could it be that we are living in a time when we are fulfilling what God already said and already knew what would happen. And he's saying there will be a time when things don't look as they used to. When things don't look as you think they should. But I have a purpose in the midst of what you're going through. You see, if God is behind everything that we're facing right now, if God is behind it all, that changes it all. If we know the principle that God is in control of, of who's in control, that should change everything about us. That means we can trust God's process. And when I say trust the process or trust God's process, I'm not talking about just this unfulfilled phrase or this unfathomable idea. I'm talking about unshakable promise that the future is good. Whatever you may be facing, the future is good, says the Lord. According to God's word, the future is good. And that your exile, your pressure, your current circumstance is not final. God is not done. God is not finished. I love that song, He Has Good Plans. And maybe it's time that we sing that over our situations, over our circumstances, over our families. He has good plans. One of our prayer warriors, um, Crystal, we call her Mama Crystal. Um, I saw her as, as she was worshiping. I was worshiping just in the halls. And I saw her and I just gave her a hug. I said, he has good plans for you. You don't know Crystal's story and it's her story to tell. But let me tell you, she is someone who has clinged to the word of God and has declared he has good plans. And she prays for you, that he has good plans for you. And she knows that I can trust God's process because the future is good, no matter what I'm facing right now. And that's not to be ignorant of our current circumstances. It's to be filled with this, with this hope of what God has for us. And if I can see my current season 
through the eyes of God's master plan, it changes everything. I love how Second Chronicles shares it. It says, the eyes of the Lord are searching all over the earth to strengthen the hearts of those who are devoted to him. How many times have you prayed for strength? And maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know, I, I don't even follow God. I, I'm not sure about this whole Jesus guy. I'm not sure about this whole church thing that you guys are doing. Um, if there's ever been a moment in your life where you've prayed for strength, I want you to know where that strength comes from is God himself. And you've asked for strength. Or I, I just need to be able to get through this. He is the one who helps us get through it. And there's this really popular verse that many of us know, many of us have quoted uh, you may have it on a bracelet, you may have it tattooed on your arm or your leg, you may have it on a blanket, you may have it on a shirt. Jeremiah 29, 11. You probably can quote it just by saying it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. We read that and we're like, yes, I'm never going to be harmed. And he says, no, <laughs> you're missing the rest of it. Because this is actually said, again, before they go into the exile, before they go into the great oppression that they're experiencing in Babylon, this is said prior to that. And he's saying, you're going to experience some pain, but know this, that he wants to offer you hope and a future. And I believe that word hope, we, we just equate it to like a wish, like I hope the Padres win. That's not hope. <laughs> and I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, hopefully they make it, you know, but I think it's like a 1% chance, so we'll see. I was at a soccer game yesterday, and um, uh, Ethan, uh, he won, and he walked up to his dad, Chaz, and he said, your prayers work, daddy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I'll let it slide, you know. Uh, but I hope, we act like it's a wish. It's not, it's not a feeling, it's a reality that's grounded in the certainty of who God is. Because I define it this way, that, that hope is a confident expectation and assurance that God always keeps his promises. That's the kind of hope that I want to have. That's the kind of hope that God wants to offer us as we read Jeremiah 29 and 11. That's what he wants to say. When you're in Babylon, you feel like you're in captivity, God says, I have a hope for you. And that hope is that you can trust in the promises that I've given you. This great reality that we would have, that we know that God is always true. God is always working. He is always up to something. He is never sleeping. And that on the other side of this situation, there is something that is good for me. Imagine if you could declare that no matter what you're going through. I talked to men in my men's group who are going through job transitions. And one of them comes to mind and I just think of the way that he's able to see it. I know God has something for me. That's true biblical hope. I don't know what it looks like. It's still difficult. However, I know God has something for me. I know that God's word is alive and that he's active in his people and in his world today. That's the hope God wants to offer us. But we have to know where this hope fully comes from. And all throughout as we read from the different various prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah like we just read, we see some common themes that actually put context to Jeremiah 29.11, which we take out of context because there's more to it. There's more to the story. So if you have your Bibles, return with me to Jeremiah. It's, it's a few books to the left. I'm going to be in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 29. And we're going to start at verse 4 because that's where we start getting into this amazing Jeremiah 29.11 promise. And I'm going, to be, I'm going to be honest. 
if we don't get what's before and what's after Jeremiah 29.11, we will never fully understand Jeremiah 29.11. So I, I love that we have that verse in our houses. I love that we have it on our sandals or whatever you have it on. However, context is key. My prayers, you know that we are, as a church, we are a church who loves context. So one of my professors in seminary would say it this way, that a text out of context is a pretext and you can make it say whatever you want. It's a dangerous game. So as a church, we preach from the Bible. Jeremiah 29 verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, the city of peace to the city of confusion. God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? He responds, build houses and settle down. What? No, God, I'm, I'm angry. Yeah, build houses and settle down. Don't tell me to settle down when I'm angry, God, right? Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers there. Do not decrease. Now, if, if you have an uh, Old Testament mindset, uh, which, is, which is great to have the context there, you're thinking, wait, so they're just supposed to marry the Babylonian? No, it's God is saying, your culture, the culture, the people of God, I want you and the people of God to marry sons and daughters together so you can continue the people of God. He's not saying go and have uh, different uh, relationships with other gods. Verse 7. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Oh my goodness. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. And then there were some false prophets that were around during that time. Much like there are today. Um, and they will say things that you want to hear. They will say things we want to hear. Scripture would call them people that speak to itching ears. Um, God continually, time and time again, shuts that down. And in this verse, I love how clearly he says it. Because if there, if, if there are certain things that you're watching, or there are um, certain people that you are believing, or there's a certain media or social media that you are viewing as they are 100% truth directly from God, and they are declaring exactly what the Lord says, here's what he says. If they're not from him... Don't let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Whew. All right, we're getting close to 11. Are you ready for this one? This is what the Lord says. I'll prosper you, yes, and hope. When you have been there 70 years. Oh. Well, no, like prosper me now. 70 years. Hey God, you said I'm not going to be harmed. Yeah, after 70 years, you're good. When 70 years have, are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Some of us, verse 10 needs to be the verse we have on our walls. Maybe you've been going through something that you feel like it's been years and years and years. But that second part, 10b, he says, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Maybe there's a place when you just had a relationship with God like you never had before and you've just missed that. And he says, I'm coming back to bring you back to that place and even better. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God is at work. And for many of us, whatever you may be facing, whatever you may be feeling, when you're feeling like there's a push, when you're feeling like there's pressure, we have this tendency, instead of waiting expectantly, we run in fear. And God is not saying, I don't want you to run. He's saying, I want you to work. There's work that needs to be done. He, he says, I want you to engage rather than retreat. It's not time to sit back. It's time to get in. And for so many of us, it's so much easier just to sit back. I mean, it feels great at times. But for so many of us, we have abandoned our culture, our neighbors, our neighborhood, our world to the enemy. And we said, why is it still like this? Because we, as people of God, are not in those situations, in those boardrooms, in those meetings, bringing God into that place so that there could be a light and a lighthouse and a lamp inside of those dark places. Boy, he said, man, someone's got to figure that out. God says, yeah, it's you. I'm going to give you that hope, and hope is active. He says, while you're here on earth, go ahead and build a life. You're going to be there for a while. We say life is short, and we're like, it's the longest thing you'll do while you're on earth. Yes, there's eternity, but you're going to be here for a while. God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? He says, okay, well, when you go through these situations, when there's a readjusting and a realignment, he says, I want you to reflect because I want to redirect you. So he says, I want you to build houses and settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, increase in number there. Do not decrease. That word build houses literally means build and rebuild. Maybe they tear it down, build it again. Settle down literally means to dwell. I want you to be so involved in that community, so involved in that space. When people see you, all they can see is the light of Christ. Plant gardens. Plant as you are transplanted. And when the weeds start to pull up, replant new things and pull out the weeds. He says, marry and multiply. Praise the Lord. This is our opportunity. While we're in whatever season you may be in, build and rebuild. Remain and dwell. Marry and multiply. Repeat. Repeat. Not the marry part. You know, just, I mean, you know. <laughs> e too. I am a, you know, you know what I'm saying. Okay, right? Multiply. Watch what God can do. Why does God want us to Multiply. Why does God want you to multiply? Imagine what your neighborhood would look like. Not if there was more of you. Because we don't need another you. <laughs> or another me. But imagine what your neighborhood would look like if there was more God. He says, I want there to be an abundance of what God is offering. Not scarcity of what God has for us. And just think about where we live. San Diego. There's 3.1 million people, and 96% of them are unchurched. We are one of the most unchurched cities in our nation. You're like, why is it like this? Well, because many of us 
aren't building houses, we're selling houses and leaving. We're not planting gardens, we're not eating what is produced. We don't want to increase number here, we want to decrease. And we've abandoned the culture to the enemy. And God is saying, what if you're here for this season, for the reason, to transform a generation? That's why I believe as a church, that's why I believe we're here. So we can transform communities. And with 96% of San Diego that is unchurched that maybe have never heard of God or the hope of Jesus Christ, we're here. And my prayer is that you would be here. My prayer is that you wouldn't just, just stop here, but you would go even to verse 7. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it pros- prospers, you too will prosper. When's the last time you prayed for your city? For your neighbor that you can't stand with a loud dog? Right. When's the last time you prayed for that boss, that coworker? But I mean, really prayed. I mean, Jesus would take this a step further. He said, uh, bless, pray for those who persecute you, love your enemies, like, like go even further. Do you pray for the people that can't stand you? Do you pray for the people you can't stand? What if there's an opportunity for you to share the light of Christ with them? And maybe they could prosper. And instead of jealousy, we too will prosper the way that God has designed it for us. I don't think we should abandon the culture to the enemy. Isolation, indoctrination, identity alteration. What if we, in the midst of feeling isolated, living in isolation, we said, okay, God, I'm here for transformation. You see, so God, how do I even do this? Well, that's what the prophet ended that moment with. He said, when it comes to God, you'll seek him when you find him. You'll find him when you seek him. Seek me with all your heart. And I feel for many of us, we've been in this moment in our lives when there's been pressure and there's been so many ideologies, there's been so many thoughts, there's been so many opinions, and opinions are great and everyone has whatever thought that they have unless it's against yours. Then you're like, no, your opinion's not good. What if, what if we could agree on this one thing, and I've, I've said this before, what if we could agree that God is for people? God loves people. And that I'm here for a reason, that you are here for a reason. And so whatever you may be facing that is causing you to feel like you're living in utter hopelessness, what if there could be a moment and we truly focus on him, and we fix our eyes on him? There's a great pastor, his name is Alistair Begg. He says that our human condition, he's talking about this sin nature. He said it's not going to be fixed by legislation, indoctrination, or education. It will only be fixed by resurrection. That's why the world needs to know who Jesus is. What if we lived with a deep conviction, a purposeful devotion to God and Him alone? I believe at that moment we'll begin to thrive in Babylon. Because they'll start asking, how do you live that way? How do you focus that way? How do you love that way? How do you care? How do you forgive? How do you give such grace? How do you walk through what you're walking through? How do you get the same diagnosis as me and you're carrying yourself differently? Because I know that on the other side of this, there's something good for me. What if you could offer that to people 
in your workplace, in your neighborhood that are walking through hopeless situations, you could offer them hope. But we have to know what hope is first. It's this constant, consistent awareness that God is true to his word and his promises and that he'll always come through. And he will. I'm going to pray for us that may be feeling hopeless. Let's pray. God, today, many of us are feeling like, much like Daniel, we are in a season of possible exile. God, wondering where you are. God, how do we be faithful to you in a, in a world or a culture that wants nothing to do with you? God, teach us what hope truly is. That we're reminded of Jeremiah 29 and 11 that you have plans for us to prosper us, not to harm us, but give us a hope and a future. The verses before us, before it remind us, there may be 70 years of pain. There may be seasons of doubt. There may be seasons of hurt. But you continue. But you, Lord, will come again and bring us back to this place. Even this moment. So Lord, for us feeling hopeless, we come to you for encouragement, we come to you for hope, we come to you for strength, because the eyes of the Lord are looking over the earth, seeking to strengthen those who are devoted to him. And when we seek you, we will find you when we seek you with all of our heart. So God, let us be seekers of the one true God. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.